Welcome to the Tennis Now Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Otto. We're going to talk about Olympics today, and I'm going to start with a public apology. I just want to get this off my chest a bit because I've been one of the bigger detractors of Olympic tennis over the last years. Uh, I really have, and I don't know how I got into this sort of negative feedback loop. I don't know how I fell into this rut per se, but I bought into everything that was bad about the games. From Zika to the fact that it's demoralizing for uh, the Blue Blood tournaments like the Bank of the West Classic, Rogers Cup, Western and Southern Open, the BB&T Open. These tournaments that face major player withdrawals and, and they get hurt at the gate and at the wallet. And um, these tournaments that they suffer and the, the, the players that have all this difficulty with too much on their plate already all our tennis fans know that that the schedule is just so heavy and it's so hard for top players to stay healthy so that they can play at their peak and prolong their careers i just got a little bit skeptical i mean i even bought into ernest Golbus saying that tennis at the olympics was more like tennis tourism i mean think of it i really bought into what Golbus was saying there like why are we even doing this I bought into John Isner, Dominic Team, Stan Wawrinka, Simona Halep, so many others, Thomas Berdick, all these players that elected not to play, whether it was for Zika virus or for other issues, prize money, lack of points. Uh, I just started to believe that maybe this was just not a good thing, tennis at the Olympics. I mean, I mean, it was even down on Rafael Nadal's decision to play multiple uh, disciplines at the game, singles, doubles, mix. I said, what is Nadal? Is he crazy? He's, he's hardly healthy. He's going to ruin his season, let alone his career doing this. I mean, I was just, I just came into it with this sort of dark, negative feedback thing going on. And uh, I had the same fears about Del Potro. Uh, why is the Tower of Tandil talking about taking things slowly, improving you know, through the season gradually until he finally hits his health in 2017? Why is he doing this? He's going to get hurt. I just was worried and, uh, to be honest, not that into it. But that all changed. Let me just tell you, that changed on Sunday night when I saw what happened with Del Potro and Djokovic. And this is not from a perspective of rooting for one player to knock off a number one. This is not for any rooting allegiances here. This was just the sheer emotional quality of that match. Basically just took my world and threw it on its ear, took all the negative loop and just ripped it away and just said, learn to love what this is about. So I have completely shifted. I'm getting it off my chest. Tennis at the Olympics, not only is it great, I have a feeling that it will outplay the U.S. Open this year. And when 2020 rolls around, I'm going to be on board. And anybody who decides to skip it, I'm just going to laugh at them. So I just wanted to get that off my chest before we get into some of the highlights of all the amazing stuff that happened at Rio this week. We're going to hear from Tennis Now's Richard Pagliaro a little later in the podcast. But before we do that, I'd like to take a moment, or ten, to give you some of my highlights from the Olympic Games. I'm going to start in reverse chronological order so we finish at the absolute peak of the Olympic sweet spot. Let's start with some players who didn't earn bronze, but definitely earned respect. 
Let's start with a shout out to the host nation, Brazil, whose fans were amazing at Rio. And whose player, number one male player, that is, Tomas Bellucci, played a heck of a tournament which included upsets of David Goffin and Pablo Cuevas. And he nearly took out Rafael Nadal in a crazy quarterfinal that featured some of the most rambunctious, boisterous tennis fans in Olympic history. Next up, we'll pay tribute to Gael Monfi, who held three match points against Kane Ishikori to reach the medal round. Agonizingly, Monfi didn't get it done, but he played exceptionally well in Rio, especially in his victory over Marin Cilic in a third set tiebreaker. Speaking of agonizing, on the women's side, in the women's doubles semifinals, there was the courage of Andrea Hlavachkova of the Czech Republic. She took a swing volley to the left eye from Martina Hingis in her match when they had match point in the second set. Was down on the court for several minutes, needed medical attention, ended up losing the match, going to the hospital, coming back Sunday and playing the bronze medal match and losing that as well. Complete heartbreaker, but a very courageous weekend from Hlavachkova who showed a lot of heart to keep her cool and keep gunning for a medal. There was also Elena Svitolina of the Ukraine. She notched her biggest win of the career, taking out Serena Williams. Williams didn't play that well in that match, but for Svitolina, what a big moment on such a big stage. That was amazing. Last but not least is the heartbreaking story of 21-year-old American Madison Keys, who looked to be in line for a medal, marched into the semifinals, with very little resistance, including some big wins, and looked to be playing such good tennis. She was unable to get through, however, she fell to Angelique Kerber in the semifinals, and then in the bronze medal match, she fell to Petra Kvitova. Key's losses were completely agonizing because those who had watched her progress through the draw earlier in the week, despite some health issues, could feel how bad she wanted that medal, and when she fell, we could feel her agony. She was gutted. And in a weird way, I think we can expect Keys to respond to this loss with a burst of growth. This is a woman who did win a medal in Rio, but proved to the world beyond a shadow of a doubt just how bad she wants it. Those were the ones who fell short, and they made the week in Rio special by laying it all out there on the court. Now for the ones who made it to the podium. A dream that for some was a lifetime in the making. Venus Williams, who earned a fifth Olympic medal, passing her sister Serena and tying for the all-time lead in medals won for tennis players with a silver and mixed. Kei Nishikori of Japan, who valiantly fought past Rafael Nadal in the bronze medal match to become Japan's first tennis medalist in 96 years. Radek Stepanek, who won bronze in mixed and took a medal to sleep with him. How do we know that? Well, the picture's there on Twitter. And how about Juan Martín del Potro? He took fans on an emotional ride to the silver medal in men's singles. The man is playing with 75% of his two-handed backhand and 150% of his heart. Under normal conditions, it's probably unlikely that Del Potro gets this far in a draw like this. 
but the big man was fueled by Olympic dreams and fire. Already a bronze medalist in 2012, the Tower of Tandil wanted more in Rio, and he got it. Another great thing about the Olympics, the way it weighs doubles and mixed doubles equally. Gold is gold, right? Make no mistake about it. In Rio, Rafael Nadal got the medal he truly coveted most when he won the men's doubles goal with his great friend Mark Lopez at his side. Why is that? Because before Nadal is a great player, a great athlete, and an absolute wizard on a tennis court, he's a great friend and a great human. And finally, the craziest and most emotional of all the Olympic moments of the week was provided by a passionate Puerto Rican with a racket, a puppy, and a dream. Monica Puig Puig shocked the tennis world by going on a miraculous run in Rio. She became the first athlete to bring gold to Puerto Rico, the first woman to ever win an Olympic medal from the country, and the lowest-ranked woman to ever win Olympic gold. How did she do it? She dreamed it first. On July 27, she tweeted, Rio ready, and posted a photo of her fingernails, which were painted, Rio 2016. Already the vision was forming in her mind. Puig named her puppy, a beautiful blue-eyed husky-looking dog, Rio. Now, I'm a big dog lover and wholeheartedly approve of Puig's choice of dog, by the way. That's a gorgeous dog. Check Twitter if you haven't seen it before. On August 6th, before her Olympic tennis started, Puig treated Dream Finally Coming True, Olympic debut tomorrow at 11 a.m. There's a picture of Puig with a Puerto Rican flag draped around her. It's amazing that this happened. Just a week later... Puig was bossing around center court and streaming golden tears with a Puerto Rican flag draped around her body as the crowd went nuts. She upset Angelique Kerber in the gold medal match. She's going home with gold. She was outside the top 90 when the season started. An unlikely hero that had always been all in for her country. Finding something deep within herself that was undeniable and at least for one week, unbeatable. Call it the Olympic spirit... Call it destiny. Just don't call Monica Puig right now because her phone is blowing up with interview requests. As promised, we're going to have a little chat with Tennis Now's Richard Pagliaro. He's our managing editor and lead contributor. He's going to talk to us about his views on the weekend in Rio. Hey, Richard. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to talk uh, Olympics. It was a great tournament. Really, really enjoyed it. Before we get to the questions, I want to ask you, how is your Olympic hangover? <laughs> it's, it's a good thing the time difference is only an hour. I'm in New York, so it's only an hour for me. But, uh, you know, it's just you just get so used to come home and watching Olympics all night. I don't know what I'm going to do <laughs> when it ends, although the U.S. Open qualities are next week, so it's not that quick of a turnaround, I guess. Yeah. Well, we're back in Cincinnati now, but before we get on to that – that wonderful tournament. I wanted to uh, have you cover a base for me that I didn't cover in the podcast. I've already ranted a lot about some other things, but I left the heavy lifting on Mr. Andrew Murray's accomplishments to you. Uh, so can you break it down for me? Um, where does Murray's back-to-back Olympic golds rank among some of the other big four accomplishments? It's funny because uh, this might sound a little bit of a stretch, but since nobody had ever done it in history, uh, I would put it right up there with his uh with his two Wimbledons, and people would say that's crazy because, 
you know, he eradicated the ghosts of Great Britain not having a Wimbledon champion for so long, and to do it at home, that's such a it's such a unique pressure. But I think this pressure was even was even more, almost as profound as as the uh, as the Wimbledon pressure because you know he, the turnaround also that he had to beat so many different styles of opponents. I mean, Fognini had him. Fognini had him beat. He was up a break in the third set. He had to beat like a touch player like Fognini. Then he has to come back against Steve Johnson, the big forehand, heavy serve, again down a break in the third set, comes back, wins that. And then Nishikori, you know, who's a little bit drained from the Monfi match, but a real backhand aggressive kind of uh, baseliner. And then just to survive the bombs from Del Potro, that just that he was able to adapt so quickly, match to match, so many different opponents, and that we always talk about his versatility and adaptability as a strength, but that he kept his cool, too, because some of the matches, you know, the Olympic crowd is completely different. It was getting pretty rowdy, and he was able to keep it together. I, I was really super, super impressed with how he did it, also physically, and I think maybe the in a weird way the loss with Jamie Early on, I think maybe that really jolted him into like I got to be super super vigilant out here because I don't want to lose uh, you know the singles gold. It, it was an amazing amazing run for him. It really was, and uh, his professionalism has really come along in the in the last few years. You have to like one of the most boring matches of the tournament, perhaps if you're not a Murray fan, was the way he took out Nishikori. But that really sort of opened the door for him to be the better player in the final, don't you think? I think so, and also even he had times where he could have cracked in the Johnson match where he got hit with a time violation, and he was saying, look, you know, it's a huge area behind the court. These aren't regular ball kit. You know, he was at basically arguing you've got to use some common sense to the chair on pair, but a few times where he could have lost it mentally, even a Del Potro match when Del Potro was up in the fourth. I mean, if it would if it would have went five, who knows? But, yeah, that he was able to keep it together was was really, really impressive. Well, Murray now is 33-2 and two in his last 35 since he started Madrid. He's on an 18-match winning streak. He's won Wimbledon. He's won Olympic gold. Uh, can we start making the argument that Murray is neck and neck with Novak Djokovic in the player of the year race? I would say the way I look at it right now, if the season end, you could say Djokovic is the is the player of the year for the first half of the year, and right now Murray has a huge leg up as the player of the year for the second half of the year. Having said that, Djokovic has the pressure defending the U.S. Open, and, and Murray doesn't because he lost early to Kevin Anderson there last year. So you could say if Murray were to come in and win the Open or Djokovic was to lose early in the Open, yeah, he could make a push, but it's important to remember that Djokovic, the fall season in Asia, he is he is like a machine in the fall in Asia I mean, he had a huge, what was it, like 26 of 27 matches last year where he went through Beijing, Shanghai, Paris. You know, he's just unstoppable in, in the uh, during the Asian swing traditionally. So it'll be interesting to see how he comes back emotionally because he absolutely looked traumatized and emotionally devastated walking off the court after the Del Potro match. And you know what, I can't blame him. I feel the same way. He really, really had that, that goal to win the gold for Serbia, and you could see it in his face how how much that hurt him. So it'll be interesting to see how he can bounce back. I think it's a good move to skip Cincy for him. But, you know, to answer your question directly, I think it's it, we have to wait to see how it what transpires at the Open. If Murray were to win the Open, you know, regardless of what Djokovic did in, in eight, I mean, to win two majors in the gold, and that's coming off the Davis Cup win months earlier at the end of last year, that's just an incredible run. 
Yeah, it's true. And we still have Davis Cup to come. Well, lots of tennis to play. Right, here, so right. We'll see how it all unfolds. Here's a general question for you about the games. Um, what were your three favorite moments from Rio? And, and what about those moments did you find kind of emotionally moving? I think you hit it saying emotion because to me it was the games of emotion and the games of the comeback, like Rafa coming back from the 73-day layoff, Del Potro coming back to the Olympics after 2012. You could even say Venus coming back after losing in singles and doubles to get a medal in the mix. That really touched me that so many players used it as a platform to launch emotional and successful comebacks. In terms of individual matches, I would say the men's final, the you know Del Potro, Murray, or Del Potro, Rafa, Del Potro, Del Potro, Djokovic. I mean, Del Potro <laughs> gave us his own sort of mini Olympics within the Olympics. I would say that those would be one of my top. And Monica Puig, the final, was just unreal what she did. And also the fact that Kerber, even though she got off to that huge lead in the third, Kerber did start coming back on her at the, that last game. At the very end, Monica Puig made an unbelievable stretch backhand volley where she kind of did a full split. And just that mm-hmm. she took her time. You know, she realized, she knew what was at stake. She knew she was playing for history. She knew it was it was re- really easy for her to get tight, that she took her time before every point and just lived the moment and, and finished. And her, her reaction afterward was just so, I mean, you see people getting choked up just watching it, how emotional and what it meant, especially for Puerto Rico, all the trying times they've been through economically and the future of, of that, that she was able to deliver for them. That was a huge thing, and to me it underscores why the Olympics in in some cases are even more important than the majors because she's forever embedded in Puerto Rican history, just like Nicholas Massou with Chile, just like some of the other great runs, Mark Rosset for Switzerland, Jennifer Capriati for the USA. You know, those are just moments that we're going to remember forever, forever. It changed her life, and it changed – maybe it changed tennis for Puerto Rico too, you know. So, So I think the Olympics is huge. It's amazing. You know, you know, it's funny. I asked you for three moments and you gave me about 33, which, which, which tells you a lot about how good these Olympics really were. And I didn't amazing. even touch on the Rafa Mark Lopez because that was incredible, too, you know, oh, yeah, to, see you Ra- you know to see Rafa pour it out like that also. And I think that's why the Olympics really, really is important, because if that was a th- best of five set major from the first match, who knows if Rafa would have even played singles. He might have just tried to play doubles because of the, not knowing if his wrist would have held up. So the fact that it was two out of three gave him a chance to play in and that just to see Rafa being Rafa again, that was just, it yeah. was, uh, it was really inspiring to see him, how much it meant to him, how much it meant to Monica and how much to Del Potro, to Murray, to everyone, Jack Sock, you know, Bethany, Matt, you see, Venus. I mean, Venus, some of those yeah. matches with Rajiv Ram, her reaction there was bigger than if she had won like a singles, uh big singles match. You could see how, how much, what of a thrill it was to Venus. Yeah, it's, it's so true. So you know, and I, and I and in the beginning of the podcast, you'll hear me. I, I, I get something off my chest and say that I've completely changed my mind about tennis at the Olympics, about the importance of it. And I personally believe that when all is said and done, the Olympics might end up being the best tournament of the year. Yeah. Uh, what is what is your take right now? Is Olympic tennis every bit as captivating as Grand Slam tennis? Uh, I guess it depends on the year and the situation. But I would say this year, this time in Rio, it. I mean, it ha- for me, it has been. I mean, everyone, you know, we've seen some great, great moments with Serena tying Steffi, major record, and Novak completing the career slam. But, I mean, just if you look at the diversity of the stories, what Monica went, meant to Puerto Rico, what Andy Murray, what you know, you could see the guy in tears. You see both of them in tears, Del Potro, what it meant for him. I mean, 
to me, it's every bit as important also atmospherically that it's so different from Wimbledon, which, you know, you think about as a tennis cathedral, so pristine and quiet. And then in Rio, people just going crazy, waving flags. You know, they don't let you bring flags into the U.S. Open Stadium. I mean, to see that kind of enthusiasm and passion. And sometimes it's spilled over. I remember the final one guy got kicked out, a Del Potro fan or Del Potro Sousa. There were some clashes with the fan. I mean, sometimes, obviously, you don't want it to go over the edge. But just the passion and the connection between the athlete and the audience for me, that was huge because you see Del Potro, that, that huge dive he took into the crowd after the Nate Down. I mean, he's really sharing it with the people and also saying the people helped push me over the finish. And I don't think you see that as much at the majors because it's more of an internal experience, whereas for me, the Olympics, it's more like right. the athlete is saying to the crowd, it's me and you, I need you, you can help me. And Monica Puig, same thing, where she said she could hear people yelling, Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And just hearing that in her head convinced her, I can do it. I can do it. And that's, it's, a, it's such a special thing to see that connection between the fans yeah. and the players. Very well said. You know, yeah, also at the Open, also, the, you know, the best seats, it's all the corporate, the luxury. The real fans are so way upstairs, they're almost removed from it. Whereas at the Olympics, you felt it was a smaller, intimate stadium where the real fans were right there on top of the court, so close, in fact, that Del Potter jumped right into their arms. I mean, you don't really see that at other, at other majors as much. Mm-hmm. No, you know, good, good points, all of them, which leads me to my final question for you, Richard. How many times did you cry while watching this? Oh, piece? God, I got to admit, I did cry. <laughs> I have to admit, I feel like overly <laughs> sentimental saying, but the Del Potro match and, uh, you know, Monica Puig, definitely. I mean, how Puig, oh my God. watching that? I mean, and, and Del Potro, you know, to see him and Andy both in tears and, and also I really felt bad for Novak seeing him walk off like that. You just felt so bad for them. Even that he tried to actually do the post-match interview, tried to give a comment when he was so devastated, it showed the, the class of the guy. It's amazing, the emotions. Yeah, it really is. It's amazing, um, sitting thousands of miles away watching on TV, that it can still grab you right through the screen, grab you by the throat, and, and, and touch you that way, how powerful it is. Beautiful stuff. Well, he's Richard Pagliaro. He's Tennis Now's Managing Editor, and we thank you for coming on. Richard, thanks so much. We'll thanks, talk Chris. To you soon. Really appreciate it. Good talking. Thank you. Take care. Have a good day. Well, that's going to be a wrap for the Tennis Now Tennis Podcast 2016 Olympics Edition. Time to move on to the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati as the U.S. Open Hardcourt Series rolls on to its final destination. We'll be back later in the week with a wrap-up from Cincy. Thanks for listening, everybody.